And turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 19, page 905, for, uh, 905 in the Pew Bible. So for the next few sermons, um, getting us through Easter, we're going to pick up in John 19 and work our way through um, aspects of the, the final moments of Jesus' life till we get to John 20 on Easter Sunday. Um, so this week... Palm Sunday, Good Friday, uh, we'll be in John 19, then come to John 20 on Easter. We're reading verses 9 through 12. Our focus will be verse 5. This is the word of God. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns. In the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You'll not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And our reading there. On May 6, 2023, a few weeks from now, the world will witness something it has not seen in nearly seven decades. And that is, of course, uh, the coronation of a British monarch. Charles III is scheduled to be officially crowned king of England on that day in a royal ceremony at Westminster Abbey. Uh, the crown that he'll, be, that he'll be receiving until then is kept under close watch in the Tower of London where the crown jewels and the coronation regalia have been carefully guarded since the 1600s. We read of a coronation just a moment ago, didn't we? The coronation of Jesus uh, took place with far less fanfare His crown was not a glittering band of gold that had been passed down throughout the centuries. It was the impromptu design of some Roman soldiers who twisted together thorny branches as part of a twisted joke. The ceremony also was not planned months in advance, nor did you need tickets to attend. There's no music, there's no TV crew. Rather, what we read in verse 5 is that Pilate 
simply parades Jesus out in front of the crowds and declares, Behold the man. Now, what you might not realize is this is actually an attempt on, on Pilate's part to spare Jesus from execution. Uh, to Pilate, Jesus of Nazareth was something of a, of a bad cold that he could not seem to get rid of. He has been trying, though, his very best to get rid of Jesus. Let's remind ourselves of the story up to this point. So uh, what, what has already taken place by the time we get to John 19? Well, Pilate had been awoken very early in the morning uh, from his headquarters in Jerusalem, his visiting headquarters. He's normally in Caesarea. Uh, And they present Jesus, this mob of Jews, they wake him up and they present Jesus as a man who's done great evil. And yet even there, he tries to wave them away. This is in chapter 18, verse 31. He says, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. I don't want anything to do with this. The problem is what they wanted was the death penalty. And according to Roman law, the Jews were not allowed to um, enact the death penalty on their own. Well, since he can't hand the can't hand Jesus back to the Jews. He next tries to pass him off to Herod in the hopes that Herod will deal with the matter because Jesus, properly speaking, is under his jurisdiction. We read of this in Luke chapter 23. Well, Herod sends him back. Uh, There's no luck there. So next and most immediately to where we're picking up things in chapter 19, if you just flip the page or look ahead or look back to the end of chapter 18, we see Pilate does something else where he tries to persuade the people to let Jesus go Uh, by means of this tradition they have that at the time of the Passover, the Romans would release one prisoner to the people. Now, this would be the best of both worlds for Pilate because on the one hand, Jesus uh, would be released, which he clearly felt was what was appropriate. He finds no guilt in him. He says that over and over again. But on the other hand, in releasing Jesus, he could not receive the blame from the people because it would have been their decision. Yes, give us Jesus back. And so it wouldn't have been as though he acquitted him. Therefore, uh, that would have, and and if he had acquitted him, that would have enraged the Sanhedrin. So he's trying to, um, he's really trying to weave his way through the different um, political complexities of this situation. But he thinks if the people that the citizens ask for him back, well, then I can say it's no longer up to me. I'm not acquitting him necessarily, so the high priest can't get mad at me. I'm just giving the people what, what they deserve by this tradition. But, of course, it doesn't work, right? They choose Barabbas instead. And so now we come to chapter 19. And we see Pilate makes one final attempt to preserve Jesus from crucifixion, and that attempt is just to beat him up, to, to give him a good, thorough beating, and then to show the crowds, look, look at this guy. I mean, we've scourged him, we've whipped him, he's, he's been mocked. Let that be enough. So the pain is meant to sort of calm the rage of the, the crowd. Luke records Pilate saying to the people very specifically, 23, verse 15, 16, Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. That's his thinking. If I punish him, if I give him a good whopping, then I can hand him back to you. And so the soldiers whip him. They beat him. They put on the ridiculous regalia fitting for how ridiculous they thought his claim of kingship to be. And Pilate brings Jesus out for everyone. Look at verse 5. This is where we're, we're going to camp out for the, most of, for, yeah, the majority of our sermon. 
And he says, behold the man. Now, the, the import of this phrase, the meaning behind this phrase is something more like, look at this guy. Look at how pathetic he is. Look at how pitiful he is. Look, he, can, he can't even stand up. He's got to be propped up by a soldier. And, and you really think this man's a threat? No. Behold this man. He's, he's gone through enough. Let him go. That's what Pilate's trying to do here when he says, Behold the man. And we might be tempted to commend Pilate for trying so hard to prevent Jesus from facing death. But let's not kid ourselves. What does Jesus say in verse 11? He says, He who delivered me over to you has the greater sin, which implies that Pilate still has a great sin. His sin is great. It's a sin against conscience because he knew Jesus was innocent. It's a a sin against his divinely given responsibility as a a leader in society, as an elected official or an appointed official. That authority comes from God, and his job is to enact justice, not to let injustice run amok. But he doesn't seek justice. He wants popularity. He doesn't want to deal with the nasty emails that would come the next day. What did you do with Jesus? We can't believe you let Jesus go. He doesn't want to deal with the protest, the possibility of a recall, whatever it might be. And so he knowingly condemns an innocent man to death. Pilate is no hero here. His sin is great. And yet even so, it's the one who handed Jesus over to him as the greater sin. And that's the high priest along with the whole council. It's the... It's the Jewish elites. It's the religious leaders that Jesus is referring to. They're the ones who want him put to death. It's not the secular official Pilate, but the religious leaders of the day. We could say it was the church of Jesus' day that wanted Jesus dead. Let that thought sink in. The church of Jesus' day are the ones who wanted him dead. The people that should have known him best the people who should have loved him most. It's those people before whom Jesus was paraded as a pathetic and defeated man who posed absolutely no threat. And Pilate pleads with them, Behold this man. Look at this poor fellow. Just let him go. But what's the answer in verse 6? Crucify him. Crucify him. It doesn't work. Pilate's final attempt fails. Now we should not be surprised though. Because these people never saw in Jesus who he really was, who he truly was. They never believed in what he said he came to do. And so if they never beheld the man before, why should they behold him now? But what do you see? That's my question to all of us this morning. Picture it. As you picture this scene of Jesus dragged before the mob, blood pouring down his face from those thorns, stabbing into his brow, head hanging in exhaustion, uh, uh, leaning pathetically on whatever soldiers are, are, are parading him about, the robe he wears stained darker still from the blood added to the purple dye. What do you see? What do you behold? Pilate implored the people to behold him, And they didn't. But this morning, I want us to behold him now. And when we do, what are we meant to see? First, we behold a sufferer. We behold one who is suffering. He suffers here in humiliation. Jesus, 
the king of glory, the savior of the world, has now become the butt of the joke. He suffers mocking and derision in a way that is unparalleled throughout all of human history. He is debased to a greater degree than anyone has ever been before or ever will be since. That's, of course, on account of his divine nature. The greater they are, the harder they fall, as the saying goes. You know, people, people get fired all the time. People get arrested all the time. All the time. We don't care at all. Unless it's a celebrity. Unless it's a politician. Unless it's somebody who holds some, some important position in society. To, to witness someone who was at one point in a place of prominence fall, it's a spectacle to us. We can't help but be interested in the story. That's what's going on with Jesus here. The eternal Son of God now has fallen. It's a spectacle to the people. But the suffering is not merely in the mocking. Uh, The intention of the soldiers was not merely to get a laugh out of Jesus. They weren't just making fun of his claims of kingship. If that's all they wanted to do is to get a laugh, they would have made a crown of straw or shoelaces. right? But they make a crown of thorns because they want to hurt him. They want to pain him. The suffering is not mocking alone. It's physical torture. So behold a sufferer. And that's certainly the heart of Pilate's point, but he did not know how right he was. He says, behold this this man, this pathetic man who's going, he's gone through so much already, but he didn't really know the extent of what Jesus had gone through, of what Jesus was suffering. So we need to see here someone who is suffering in a way that's more than just being mocked and even more than just being tortured, someone who is suffering the effects of sin. That's what the crown of thorns teaches us. Thorns represent the whole effect of Adam's sin upon creation. Genesis 3.17, he said to Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you that you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to you. Thorns represent the whole effect of of Adam's sin. Because of sin, the world will sting. It won't work right. It will be frustrating. Life will be marked with frustration and hardship. And so thorns, they first appear the whole way back in Genesis 3. And you know full well we have not been able to escape them since. The thorns of this life, the toil of this life, the frustration of this life, we have not yet been able to escape the thorns. But here's something profound we learn in John 19. Jesus doesn't escape them either. He doesn't escape them either. And so here's one who truly came to share in our suffering, to sympathize with our weaknesses and our sorrows. Hebrews 2.18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. And so we have one who, though never having committed a sin, feels the effects of sin. And he feels them entirely. He feels them fully. See that as he wears the crown. I mean, Let's just put it simply. Think of it. What's worse, a hand wound or a head wound? A head wound, obviously. And so Jesus, as he bears that crown, is wounded where it would hurt most fully. It's not just nails in the hands. It's thorns on the head. And that's why we sing, see from his head, his hands, 
his side. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? See it there. Behold this man who came to suffer. He didn't try to avoid it. He didn't shrink back from it. He embraced it fully as a requisite for what it would mean to redeem sinners. It's interesting. Twice over in the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. If you want to look at those, Hebrews 2.10 is the first place. Hebrews 2, verse 10 This is what we read there. First, it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And then flip over a few pages, chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect... He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, this word perfect does not imply that there is something deficient in the person of Jesus Christ, something lacking. But it does tell us that there was something that was incomplete in his mission. Right? That's the meaning of the Greek word to, uh, perfect there, translated perfect. It means to, to fulfill or totality. It means completeness, wholeness. And the work of redemption was not going to be complete or whole or fulfilled or even effective in any way until Jesus suffered. Until he suffered. That's why he came. If he didn't suffer for us, he could not bring many sons to glory. If he didn't suffer for us, then he could not be the source of eternal salvation. And so he embraces the sorrows and the suffering. He embraces the thorns of this world fully because to do so is how he embraces you and me fully. Because we too are sufferers. We feel the effects of sin, and Jesus says, let me feel them too. And so see the crown of thorns that the Son of God wears, and behold this staggering fact. Here it is. Are you ready? The crowning achievement in Jesus' life is that he came to know your sorrow, to bear your shame. And to share in your suffering. It's his crowning achievement. Behold a sufferer. Behold also a substitute. A substitute. We see that secondly. Ever since sin entered the world, humanity has known deep down that we need something more than somebody who suffers alongside us. Or something more than a sympathizer. Sympathy is well and good. It has its place. But it doesn't cure our woes. Think about you're dealing maybe with a family financial crisis of some kind. and It, it means something. It does mean something for a friend to say, you, you know, you're in our thoughts and prayers. It means something more for the friend to say, uh, let me cover those bills for you. Uh, you're going through uh, intense treatment. And it's one thing for somebody to say, I'm keeping you in prayer through your treatment. But it's quite another for someone to say, well, let me take the chemo for you. If that could work. We understand. We've known from the beginning. Sympathy gets us only so far. We need a substitute. And behold him here in John 19 verse 5. As Pilate parades him from the people. Behold this man. Pilate doesn't realize it. But he's saying behold your substitute. 
The one who comes to take the wrath of God in your place. Behold the one who is not spared so that you could be spared. Behold here the fulfillment of what Abraham and Isaac experienced thousands of years earlier. You remember the story, right? Abraham, he's called to an immense act of sacrifice to offer up his, his beloved son, the only son he has with Sarah, to offer him up to the Lord. And yet he has faith, we're told in Genesis 22, verse 7. Isaac says, behold, the fire in the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Dad, where's the lamb, right? And Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so they went on, both of them together. He has faith, and his faith is not in vain. Verse 13, And Abram lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son, as a substitute for his son. It surprises us, even if we've read it a hundred times, where we're expecting Isaac to be the type of Christ, right? It makes sense. We've, we see the parallels between him and, and Jesus, the, the only beloved son of the Father who's offered up, who's sacrificed, but, but who we believe will be resurrected and returned to the Father. But then all of a sudden there's this twist where the focus changes from Isaac, and we see, no, actually, Christ is pictured for us in the lamb, in that ram caught in the thicket. Abram lifts up his eyes and behold, a ram caught in the thorns, an innocent life to be offered instead of his son. You and I, we need to look up and we need to behold in Jesus Christ the very same thing. The lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, slain so that you and I can be spared. That's what it's all about. Here is Jesus In John 19, trapped in that thorny thicket of God's wrath, crowned with divine judgment, so that you and I could be set free. So Jesus came not only to sympathize with you, but to be your substitute, to spare you, to save you. Listen to what Jesus said of himself. This is according to the words of Isaiah, which Jesus opens up in Luke 4. I'm going to quote from Isaiah, though. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me To bring good news to the poor, he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, and listen to this, to comfort all who mourn and to grant to those who mourn in Zion, giving them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes and the oil of gladness instead of mourning. Do you see the substitution? Do you see the switch, the exchange that takes place? Thorns for Jesus, but for you, a beautiful headdress. If you're a Christian, God crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Psalm 103 tells us that's our crown. Crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. The favor of God is upon us, and it can never be removed throughout all the ages. A sufferer and a substitute. When you take this all in, though, uh, as if it could ever be taken in fully, but when you start to think about these things, don't we also behold here a surprise? Doesn't this surprise you? And the twisted wreath of thorns is a twist to the whole story of how we thought this world operates. What do I mean by that? 
I mean that when you see Jesus wearing the thorn of crowns, it changes what we think uh, about what it means to be a king. It changes the way we view suffering. It changes what we value in this world. And it's all very surprising. It's not what we expected. It's not what the world tells us that matters. It's not even the things that uh, naturally we are drawn towards. But this is the twist that we find in Scripture. Because Jesus suffered and was raised, our suffering is transformed. This is what Paul writes in Romans 8. I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing to the glory that soon is to be revealed to us. The king who's crowned with thorns is actually the king who conquers. He conquers through suffering. The suffering isn't a hiccup on the, on the way. It's not um, uh, some sort of uh, accident that happened in God's plan and they need to figure out a plan B. Plan A was suffering for sufferers. Was to be a substitute for sinners. And in his suffering, he transforms our own. Now think about it like this. If, if this is the way of Jesus, should it not be the way for his people? Well, of course it should be. We read about this in 1 Peter 4. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So what I'm saying here is that the crown of thorns should should entirely upend that which we value in life. Those things that we pursue after and value. And it's surprising because the world tells us it's, that's the opposite of what we should want and everything that we're naturally inclined towards. Right? We want a pain-free existence. We want minimal suffering. But God invites us into a different value system. Are you ready for that? Do you understand that? Charles Spurgeon puts it so well. This is what he says. He says, that thorn crown cures us of desire for the vain glories of the world, and it dims all human pomp and glory till it turns to smoke. Let us set some great one on his throne and see how little he looks when Jesus sits beside him. Oh, it takes the glitter from your gold the luster from your gens, the beauty from all your dainty delights, to see that no imperial purple can equal the glory of his blood, and no gems can rival his thorns. And so show and parade cease to attract the soul when once the excellencies of the dying Savior have been discerned by the enlightened eye. Who seeks for ease when he has seen the Lord Christ? If Christ wears a crown of thorns, shall we covet a crown of laurel? Why these luxuries when he is so barbarously treated? Thus the thorn crown cures us at once of the vain glory of the world and of our own selfish love of ease. Is that what you were expecting? As you behold this man crowned with thorns that actually has something to do for you. That's a word there for you and for me and how we think of this life. Well, is this what you expected the King of Kings to look like? Maybe not. But I want to say in closing, don't let your unmet expectations move you to pity him. That's what Pilate wanted. Oh, pity this guy. Just feel bad for this guy. Don't let your unmet expectations move you to pity him as though, oh, he tried so hard to be king. And yet he came up short. 
No, the fault isn't in Jesus. The fault is our expectations. So again, don't let your unmet expectations move you to pity him. Rather, let them move you to praise him. For he is so much more than we could have ever hoped for. He is so much more by becoming so much less. Do you see that? Behold the man. Behold a sufferer. Behold a substitute. Behold a surprising twist to God's way of redemption. But don't make the mistake that the crowds did that day. The crown of thorns was reason for them to laugh. May it be reason for you to love. My Jesus, I love thee. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I love thee. My Jesus, it's now. May that be a statement we can all say in true faith today. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for sending your Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And that he would take on the effects of sin, the sufferings of this world, so that he could bring many sons to glory by being our substitute. Would the picture that we've received in John 19 transform our expectations of what we think a king ought to be or Christ is supposed to be? Would we see one who in coming, being brought low is then exalted? And so we should seek the same things in life, that we would not, uh, that we would not despise suffering, but we would count it a joy as it draws us closer to our Savior. Lord, would we behold this man and would we love him? We pray it for his sake. Amen.